We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where you learn how to be a leader and not just a manager of a to-do list. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. I just want to take a minute and remind you to check out ConradChallenge.org and look at the kinds of things you can do to support students. The Conrad Challenge is really about facilitating 21st century skills of creativity, collaboration, critical thinking, communication. So go and check that out at conradchallenge.org. And if you missed my interview with Nancy Conrad, go check that out as well at transformativeprincipal.org slash Nancy Conrad. Hi, I'm Chris Nessie from the House of EdTech podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of each individual host. And make sure to check out all the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. And now, the learning begins in 3, 2, 1. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am so excited to have Jeremy Williams on the podcast we are going to be talking about a whole bunch of crazy stuff, I am sure. But Jeremy, welcome. Why don't you tell us who you are and what you're doing? Uh, thanks for having me, Jethro. My name is Jeremy Williams. I am the principal of an American school in the middle of the desert in the United Arab Emirates called Manor Hall International School. And we're a K-12 school that serves 600 students that represent 46 different countries. So it is an extremely diverse school. And I feel like we're finally getting the um, Alaska to UAE podcast connection going because I know there's a big clamoring for getting more people from the UAE and from Alaska on on a podcast together. So we're gonna we're gonna hit, get that box ticked today. Okay, we definitely did it. And it's funny you say that because actually I just did a listener survey and they said we want more people from international schools. So boom. Done. Look how responsive you are. You're you're like a teacher looking at their data to inform their instruction the next day. Unbelievable. Incredible. Unbelievable and innovative, I might add. So oh, um, yes. So I got connected with you from listening to 
your podcast with Don Wetrick on Start Ed Up Podcast, which is awesome. And you can learn more about that at startedupinnovation.com or .org. I can't remember one of those, but just you'll find it. And I, I loved your conversation because you were talking about how we could start using blockchain for education. On that podcast, you said, anybody who wants a primer on blockchain, give me a call. I'd never thought of using it for marking or grading students. So I thought it was brilliant. I think it's exactly the kind of thing that we need. And so can you give us a little introduction to what blockchain means when we're talking about education? Because all anybody ever thinks about is Bitcoin. And I think there's... You're right. And Bitcoin has set back the blockchain conversation, I think, in a number of different industries because it, it made it, Bitcoin made it something sexy and fun to speculate on. But you're right. So, really, what blockchain is at, at its core is that it's a ledger, like your old school checkbook that you used to use before online banking happened. It, it's a record of transactions and accounts. And so, it is very disruptive in any industry where there's an e- intermediary. So if you think about going to the grocery store and swiping your card, you're going to have on your bank account, depending on how you paid, like this uh, processing or pending thing. And what blockchain, what's happening behind the scenes is the merchant and the person, the purchaser, they're trying to verify that there's both this transaction is supposed to happen and there's the funds to pay for it. Well, blockchain basically keeps on this ledger the funds and makes them accessible instantly. So it disrupts intermediaries. And I would say disrupt is probably like a really polite word. It kind of crushes intermediaries. So if you think about textbooks, I order textbooks for my school. I have a vendor who I order them from. They get shipped. Uh, Once they get shipped, we get an invoice. My accountant takes the invoice. There's an accounts payable voucher. Then 30 days later, maybe a check shows up or something. With blockchain, you could set up on the ledger on one hand, the geo coordinates for the school. And on the other hand, the school could put the money uh, for the books. And then it basically, as soon as the books hit that geo tag, the, the funds would be released. Which when you start thinking about that level of automation, I really don't need my accountant anymore in the school because these things get processed instantly. So I think the way that looks in a school is right now when you think about the whole, we're, we're preparing, the conversation has moved in schools like we're preparing, preparing our, kids, our kids for college, which I actually think is horrible. And we really need to be talking about how do we prepare our kids for career? Because they should go to college with a desire to pursue some career that they're passionate about. And so the way that I see blockchain disrupting the entire education system is what if we could provide credentials to students that did not require higher education to be the sole guarantor of a credential. Because right now, if I want to study something, I have to go to a school, some sort of school to get it. But you're seeing more and more corporations that are moving toward a non-diploma requirement and being more open about who they hire. So I think like blockchain seeks to destroy intermediaries, I have my sights clearly set on higher education as this is a profit-oriented model that has not shifted or changed. They moved online. They charged the same amount for their classes that they did when they were brick and mortar. And so like, I think that's where my head's at right now. Yeah. So like my brother, for example, he is a brilliant sysadmin and is MCSE, Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer, and has all kinds of other uh, endorsements from companies and 
different places to say this guy knows his stuff and he knows what he's doing and he is uh, has climbed up in his different jobs and has been successful, but he hasn't had a bachelor's degree. And so he can do all the work, but the thing that's preventing him from moving further is him not having that bachelor's degree, which is ridiculous because he's still making good money. He's still living a very fulfilled life, but he just doesn't have this thing that the university says he has to have. And so there are certain jobs that he just can't get even though he is perfectly qualified to do that. And that just seems crazy to me. Yeah, I I would agree with you. And here's what I want you to wrap your head around, Jethro, because the other thing that blockchain does is it verifies in a virtually unhackable way information. It it cannot be hacked. And I could get more into how that works, but I'll I'll spare you the boring explanation of that. But there are 2 million medical professionals in the United States alone that are performing without a valid medical license or with inauthentic or fake credentials. So when you think about that, so yeah, we're, we're requiring it, but as an employer, how do I verify that the person who has these credentials and values, how do I ensure that they're real? There's really no way to do that right now. Someone gives you a CV and maybe they scan a picture of their diploma, but it's all speculation. Blockchain ends that. So in the, in the example of brother, if he had a credential that was blockchain encrypted or authenticated, where it was the result of a project he led, an employer could look at that credential and then make a really sound judgment on the type of work that they could do. Because just because someone has the diploma doesn't mean they're going to, to be effective at a job. And yeah, I think that we have to start changing that conversation. So the lie that we tell ourselves is that a diploma or a high school diploma or a bachelor's degree in associates means something when in reality it it could mean a variety of different things and people can take different classes to get their their bachelor's degrees that you know make up weaker or more challenging degrees and whatever so how does blockchain authenticate something like a work experience in a way that somebody could find meaning and value with that what does that look like So I'll actually change the context of that conversation and focus it on how it would look in a K-12, which is the project that Don and Brady Anderson are working on now. So you look at how students are evaluated now. They maybe have some projects, they maybe have some tests, and then they, they get a B or a C, and no one really knows what in the world to make of that. The universities want you to have A's for some reason, but let's be real, they're going to take as many people as they can take because the majority of them are highly profit oriented and they have to pay for their $7 million a year football coach too. I mean, this is big business. So I think like on the K-12 side, what we are positing is that if we had the ability for authentic assessments that were more performance oriented and that we attached a verifiable blockchain ledgered credential to them, that our kids, not only would they provide them with a credential that we would know they achieved it because it's secure and it's been awarded by their teacher, but I think like it also starts to change the conversation around grades and it gives the learner something of value to, to get out of the course. And it's not just about getting the A, which, you know, for I have a bunch of kids that want to be doctors in my school. It's fascinating. They are so motivated to get their A. But what about those kids that don't want to be doctors? 
And where's the motivation for them? And right now, I don't think there's a tremendous amount of that for them. Maybe they have a couple courses. Maybe there's a genius hour or an open source learning program that they're interested or passionate about. But they, otherwise, school is a, a pretty lame use of their time. Yeah, I, I definitely find that myself and and see kids who are just totally disengaged because they either think they already know what the teacher is teaching or they really do already know what the teacher is teaching or regardless, it doesn't really apply to them. And so learning about the about the Civil War in the United States, that was, you know, a long time ago to these young kids who were only 12 and 13 years old that really is not interesting to them. And if you're trying to teach it in the same old traditional way, there are a lot of other things competing for their attention. And so if somebody does give them the credential in blockchain, what, what does that actually look like? And how do, you, how do you verify that? What information needs to go in there? And then how do you know that that's quote unquote good enough for us to say that's good enough? So that's a good question. And that's some of the challenges that we're sorting through right now. So you can put as much data on the ledger as you want, right? You can store as many different things on it as you want. But then you do run into some issues around how much is too much. If someone is taking an open source learning course that's not in a school or that's in a school, that that information that they tried to get the credential 12 times and couldn't get it, but then they finally got it, is that something that should be publicly stored and accessible? So I think you you really look at have they achieved the task? And the tasks have to be structured in a way, almost in a, in a binary fashion where they were either done or they weren't done. So in the first course that we're doing as an MVP, we Brady, Don, and I have been having a lot of conversations around like what, what is one of the credentials going to look like? And what we landed on is that there's going to be part of Don's course that he made for the Start It Up Foundation. The first chunk of it is really focused on finding your purpose and passion. So what we landed on as what we wanted to credential is we wanted students with success criteria attached to be able to publicly declare what their purpose and passion was. So we take them through these reflective activities that Don set up. And then at the end, we give them some criteria on what has to be included and involved. And then they have to share that. And they have to share it publicly through either LinkedIn or some other form. So then on the credential itself, would be that he accomplished this. Then you'd have to tie to that credential a URL to some sort of e-portfolio where then they could actually see the work or a hyperlink to the social network where it was posted. So the credential itself would verify that it was achieved. And then you have to use other documentation sources to show what was created. But you can see how like getting someone to pass up a multiple choice test, this would not be a good use of the credentialing format because you can do that already. Yeah, I hear you. So how do you prevent this from just becoming the next chasing the A grade? What things need to be in place so that it's not just a jumping through the hoops to get the A grade? And maybe it is, and maybe that's okay. So I could be, that could be a not very good question. Well, no, I mean, I think that you have to, you have to assess where the viability would be for you. I mean, if you're in a really, really tight school district where you don't have any variance or any ability to change how things work, you add it as a supplement. You, you can't destroy your grading system. You don't have the permission or authority to do so. So you create this as a performance-based assessment or you create performance-based assessments that, that can be credentialed. 
So I think it's really speaking not to eliminate grades, even though that would be my preference because I don't think they work for anyone other than the university. They work for them because then they can compare kids in some weird linear scale. Yeah, and the teacher because they can punish kids. Yeah, and the teacher. Oh, yeah, you can evaluate the teacher too. When it's like, you know, the teacher could then just give everyone A's, it's really messed up. So I think, I think it's more as for the teacher who wants kids to be motivated intrinsically or the leader, we could help you look at your courses and provide verifiable and meaningful credentials. And then I think when you extrapolate that out, when you go exponentially, then I think it turns into you can help companies find people that have the right skill sets. And then and only then do you start to shake the paradigm of higher education a little bit, you know, because then suddenly if you have the Googles of the world saying, we don't, you don't need a diploma or for your degree to work here. And you got others stepping up doing that. And then you're providing meaningful credentials to people so that they can demonstrate that they would be a great fit for a job. Now I think you have a chance to start making changes to higher ed. And it's my opinion that the impediment to changing in K-12 is the outputs required by state policymakers and higher education. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, is that not even all of our students go on to higher education and there are plenty of students that go into other fields that don't require higher education. And yet we are forced into that by those requirements. So you hear these ideas that maybe they're not looking at GPA as much, and maybe they're looking at other things as well. And so if we're going this route, then Google, for example, could say, okay, I want somebody who knows their passion and their purpose. That is a requirement. Then anybody at any time could go find out how to get that credential and get that credential, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So they they go find out how to get that credential. And so Don, because he started it, he's like the best person to go to. But Don costs, you know, $5,000 to take the Passion and Purpose course. Not that he does. I'm just saying, for example. And then they go find uh, Jeremy over here who's doing a Passion and Purpose course that only costs 250 bucks. How do you then evaluate whether Don's Passion and Purpose is better or worse than Jeremy's Passion and Purpose course? It's a really good point. And one of the things that we've been talking about, not because we're, any, we're, we're not thinking about monetization right now because we're trying to add value to others. Like we know that this is a problem and we know that we want to help address this problem. But I do think you run into some scenarios where to me, we're going to launch this course in January and see what happens with students, both in the UAE and in the US to see what, when we study the phenomenon of what it looks like. But to me, like, you're right. If you opened up this open market of learning and there's no way to regulate, which is what the universities and higher education institutions do through accreditation processes and things of the like, then you do run into kind of a wild, wild west of learning. So I think that there is an inherent value in having experts in a field weigh in on the value of the credential. And I think that if you're looking at cost, I think if you really want to try to disrupt what higher education is doing for some people, right? If I'm going to be a teacher, I need to go. There's no way around it, unfortunately. I have to do it. But if I'm trying to disrupt for some people, you have to have a very low barrier to entry because for someone to take a chance on it, 
if the cost is prohibitive, they're just going to go to the four-year school. And I think when I look at the idea of how much should people pay, I don't think they should pay a lot. I think if you think about a Netflix subscription, I'm just imagining maybe something like a Netflix subscription for learning too. And then, I mean, you could move to a model eventually of open source learning where different people create course content, they're vetted, you have the content creator paid, and then you offer six courses a month with credentials attached and and something like that. So I think those are all things. That's why we're talking to you and we're talking to anyone who wants to talk to us to help figure out how does this look to really serve people in a big way? Because I don't think that learning is regulated for kids in a K-12 school. And I don't think that teaching is regulated for teachers in a K-12 school. So I think long-term, we would like to see an, an open community of, of learners and teachers. So, so with that idea then of having an, uh, an open, eventually, community of, of teachers and learners, how do you judge whether or not somebody's doing something that is, you know, worth, worth the credential and having it, you know, if we all know that high school teacher that, you know, you go to his class and if you show up, you know, 10 times out of 15, then you'll get an A in the class. Uh, but it's the same content allegedly and the same standards allegedly as the teacher down the hall who makes you read, you know, 50 pages every night. How do you balance out and determine what is good enough to be part of the blockchain? Yeah, I think for us, it, it would be an open network, meaning that anyone could teach or anyone could learn, but there would have to be a vetting process on the course itself, on the assessment for the credential and on the criteria for the credential. So that is where you'd have to get really tremendous teachers to be a part of this, people who have experience with curriculum, people who have experience with the content. Because if you're doing graphic design course, you need someone who understands graphic design to understand what the credential. And then one potential thing you could think about too is that maybe that the person who awards the credential is not the teacher, which uh, mm-hmm. is another way to try to create a layer around objectively analyzing someone's performance on uh, on a task. So these are all things that we're trying to sort now as we are in our ideation stage of this project. Yeah. And, and what I love, Jeremy, is that the answers don't have to be clear cut right this second. And so like, it's, it's good to be asking these questions and trying to figure out. And what I'm hearing is that they're it's essentially setting up another intermediary to determine whether or not is something is worthwhile in, in that credential. And so, so is that what I foresee then with that approach is, you know, Stanford's going to come along and say, these are all the things that we think are valuable. And, you know, Don, who's got this great experience, could get pushed out a little bit in that he doesn't have the brand that Stanford does. And so then the universities just take this over and do the same thing that they've been doing. And it's not actually that disruptive because they're the ones doing it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think my response to that would be then good for them. Yeah, if, right. <laughs> if it disrupts the model where then they eat us because they're trying to serve people in a more cost-effective way that they're not enslaved when they graduate with their degree, then good for them. I'll be the first to stand up and, and clap for them because I, I don't think any of us are into this project because you know we're chasing something. I think we're looking at this like we know this is a problem 
And until someone stands up and screams to try to find a solution, I mean, if you graduate with a degree that costs eighty to one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and you have a job where you come out of school and you're making thirty one thousand dollars, you're never paying off those student yeah. loans. And if people keep lining up to do it, right, then they'll, I mean, business will boom. And so I would love if the universities would say, "This is a great idea. We're going to do it," right? Because the only thing that would keep us over them is the price point. And if they're going to bend on their price point and they're going to change the way they're monetizing to make it fairer to the student, then I think we've already won. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And, and so the other thing that you hinted at that I think is really powerful is the idea of, of these smaller bite-sized micro-credentials of you know, finding your passion and purpose. And what I love about that is that instead of having to commit to a certain number of hours, you show the thing that you are able to do. And so, you know, LinkedIn is kind of like this in some ways where they're like, you know, Jeremy is endorsed in educational leadership and he's also endorsed by other people in, in these different things, these different like skills is basically what those are. And so this would give more opportunity for, for people to have smaller chunks so that you wouldn't have to have a bachelor's degree. You know, one of the things that my brother struggles with is getting into leadership positions. If he could be endorsed somehow in leadership, then they could say, oh yeah, we recognize and verify that that credential in leadership is good enough. We don't need the bachelor's degree. We'll take that instead, which I think opens up a whole new opportunity for different things to be to be brought in that skills that people have that they could develop. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that we've talked about, you know, my personal joy I would have in destroying the death star that is higher education, or at least making it fair to the people it's trying to serve. But I think when you talk about a changing economy, this fourth industrial revolution, there's this need for upskilling people that are already in the career for like the workforce. And I do think that that, I mean, if you have two kids and you're in this job and you're making ends meet because, you know, you have taxes and you have all your bills, right? And an MBA or a master's degree may not be something that you could take on or a bachelor's degree, depending on what field you're in. But could you, if you could take a credential that did have a value because Gary V has, uh, you know, evaluated this uh, purpose and passion course for some other, you know, entrepreneurial person who's well respected, then maybe for someone like me as an employer, if I was looking at someone, I would value those credentials. And so I think that is the upskilling of people that are in the workforce now is another area where there are really good companies um, that are doing this work a little bit already. Credly is one. Um, they are doing corporate micro credentials, but they're like intra credentials, you know, like they're, they're credentials that if you work at IBM, you could take this course and you'd get a little badge or a credential. But I think that that would be a good way because right now, to your point, you're pretty limited on what you can do to address some of those areas that you view as needing development as a professional. Like for me, I would love to understand more about finance. I do not want to take an MFA. I do not want to uh, you know, do a finance degree, but if there was a, a a really a good course for educators to understand understand school finance that I could take, and I would leave with a credential that demonstrated I could construct my own school budget, 
that would be something that would be worthwhile to me. Yeah, that would, that would definitely be worthwhile. And so like in education as professionals, for example, you know, you can go and specialize and, but then you can also just be thrown somewhere and have to learn it all on the job anyway. Like if you're in a small district and you know, you're the principal who's over human resources or you're the principal who's over special education, like you have to figure all that stuff out, like while you're doing it. And, and that can be very challenging. But if there is a way to say, okay, I, you know, finance may not be the thing that I'm interested in, but if you're interested in that, you can specialize in that a little bit and have these different ways of showing that without having to go get an additional, you know, $30,000 finance master's degree that, you know, you may not want to focus that much in that just enough to be qualified for this job. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think like if I was a small business and I wanted to upskill my people and I knew there was this option that would award them a credential that would not be cost prohibitive, I would be really interested in providing that to my employees. Yeah, totally. And you'd be grateful for the opportunity to upskill them and pay for it because it's going to benefit you ultimately in the long run and in the short run, probably too, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would assume so. Okay, well, so this is all really fascinating. What's the question that I should be asking about blockchain that I haven't yet? Um, I think you kind of already hit on it when you talked about Bitcoin. So I think I would say, you know, people would say, well, why, why shouldn't we talk about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin? And my answer to that would be we should. Because there is lots of ideas around decentralization of banks that's really interesting. You see articles, I retweeted something yesterday about uh, paperless currency, like whole, whole communities in, in countries going to like, a, you know, a, a, an invisible currency. And so there's a lot of interesting things happening there. But to me, what impacts my students the most is that jobs will change, require upskilling, and will be vastly different than the jobs they are now. An accountant will likely, there'll be less of them, right? And if they are the same amount of them, they're going to need to know how to work with this technology. A lawyer with smart contracts coming, they're still going to need lawyers. I'm not saying that there will be no jobs run for the hills. What I am saying is that lawyer is going to need to know different things. And I feel like if the message to kids is go into one of these safe careers and everything's going to be all right, I just don't know that that's the case anymore. And in a, in a situation where schools are really focused on tech, on virtual reality, augmented reality, getting kids to code, I think lost in that is how technology is going to impact the, the future of jobs and how to ensure that if you are going to spend basically the amount that it costs to buy a home for an education, that you get it in something that you really love, one, and that two, that there's a need for. And that is so, that's such simple advice, but that's also very, very challenging advice because we don't, we don't always like, that's not what we say. We say, go get the job that gets you a lot of money so that you can provide for your family, even if you have to go into incredible amounts of debt. And we're, we're still not talking a lot about people doing things that they love every day. And the amount of attention that I have to pay to students who are depressed or anxious or whatever, you know, in a system where, you know, everybody gets a participation ribbon, 
you would think that kids would feel better about themselves, but they're, they're just not, they don't. And there's so much that is so hard for kids right now. And it's almost all in their minds. And if you think about having to go to a job that you hate for the rest of your life, oh my gosh, that just sounds like torture and just it sounds pretty terrible. Yeah, it does. And and I think that there is a, I don't want to be, I want to misconstrue something. I want to make sure I'm clear on this point. If, and Jethro, I'm, I mean, you've seen my picture on my uh, Twitter bio. Yeah. If I say that my passion and purpose is to be a male model, unfortunately, <laughs> despite that being what I want to do, I just don't think it's in the cards for me, right? So it's not that what I think happens is that we don't drill down enough into conversations with children about what is the real essence of what gives you purpose and passion. So if you say you like medicine, you want to be a doctor. Why do you want to be a doctor? Oh, I want to help people. Oh, you want to help people? Well, guess what? There's six trillion professions that can help people, and there's three trillion of them that pay pretty well. So, why are you closing yourself off to wanting to be a doctor when that's not really the core of what gives you purpose? It's not, you know, medicine. It's not that you love medicine. And I think that's kind of a missing component to all of these conversations with kids around this what do you want to be when you grow up mentality is that we have to drill down. If they love soccer, maybe what they love about soccer is that they love teamwork. Maybe what they love about teamwork is that they enjoy getting energy. They're extroverts. They draw energy from other people. So they need to work in a career path that's heavily people-oriented. And I just think like we, we don't dig deep enough into what really drives kids and motivates them. And once I think you get there, you can start opening doors for them about what's possible. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm embarrassed to say that I became a teacher because I thought being a teacher was how you taught people was the way you taught people. And now I realize there are so many different ways that you can teach people that you don't have to be a K-12 or university educator to teach people. There are so many different ways. And when I was young and stupid, I just didn't know that those other things were an option. And you know, now I'm kicking myself because I could have done so many different things with my life. I love what I do. Don't get me wrong, but I could have had a much different life if I would have known about other things. And of course, that's my own fault because I didn't go and search them out. I just, you know, followed the path that was put before me. That was pretty easy. You know, graduate from high school, go to college, choose a major, and then, you know, do something that would be fairly easy path of least resistance that you know, that was the path that I took. And I don't think that's good advice to give kids then when I was a kid, nor now. Well, and I mean, let me give you this example. I have a student who's a senior now, but when I got to this school, she was a sophomore. She's 15 years old. She's Emirati. So she's local to the UAE. She is the most incredible young person that I've ever worked with, but it's not because she's a brilliant mathematician. It's not because she's a Rhodes Scholar of English. It's not because she's a world-class engineer. She is an inventor, so she does invent things. She is you know, really into robotics, so she does make things. But she is fearless. Like She is at 15, Jethro. She was at the World Government Summit in Dubai. She went on to speak in front of this room of, of people from all over the world 
She was after the, the director general of the United Nations and before Elon Musk. And this is a 15 year old who's standing on this stage running the room, right? And what struck me about her, the difference for what, what Fatima Al-Kabi, her you know, incredible ability is that she had parents who exposed her to a lot of the different things when she was young. She tried robotics and fell in love with it. And had she not had parents that had done that for her, I don't know that she would be the same person she is. And I think that we cannot de- re- rely on parents to do that. And it, as principals of schools, it's our opportunity to expose kids to things that can help them the, discover what they like. I think about like kindergarten as an example. We should be asking kids in kindergarten way more what they like and don't like about each activity they do so that they can start having, having a sense of self-identity wow. and, and who they are and what they enjoy and what they don't enjoy. So I think like this is part of a bigger picture around getting kids to be really reflective and us as adults making sure that they do see the full picture of possibilities. Like you described, you didn't know these things were possible. And I feel like so much of the conversation has changed to getting every kid to college and that that we can get them there, but who the hell cares if they don't know what they want to do once they get there? Yeah, exactly. And so now you're bringing up a totally different subject and idea of actually caring what kids think and feel and then asking them and then responding to that and actually like making time in the day for them to explore without a grade attached to it. But there's so little time for that in our traditional schools that it's just, it's crazy. I mean, there's zero time for that in most schools, I would say. It is all planned out by the adults and kids have no, very few opportunities to do any kind of exploration without getting in trouble for that. Yeah, and we're having this conversation now. In our seventh through 12th grade program, we have a lot of really, really awesome electives. We have a a design and technology elective. We have an entrepreneurship elective similar to Don's open source learning. We have a social media marketing elective. We have a, a game building elective where kids make their own board games. So like, we have this stuff happening in the, with the older kids and it's easier to do because of their schedule, right? We're on an, a block schedule. So we have 90 minute periods. We have four per day. We can have our school small enough to have these electives happen. But where we're struggling is we're trying to figure out in the, in the pre-K to six, how does that look? And I think the genius hour model is, is kind of you know, that, that idea of giving kids time to work on something that they haven't invested interest in and us as educators supporting them and pursuing that interest is a really important piece that I would contend is probably at least equally important to them being numerate and literate. And you're right, there's not space for it. And I think it's going to take courageous leaders to figure it out, right? We, we cannot have the excuse of that it's hard to, to make it work in the day. Like if we believe, yeah, I, I would say it's a matter of civil disobedience. And, you know, it, we have to do what we have to do to make sure that we can try to provide kids with these opportunities. Yeah. And, and so this is what I'm working on way up here in cold Fairbanks, Alaska, is two things. Number one, currently doing at my middle school, seventh and eighth grade, instead of doing advisory for 30 minutes, three times a week, We are doing what we call synergy, an hour and 45 minutes twice a week where kids get to go and choose something that they want to be working on and develop a product or process or something and create something. 
people have been listening to my podcast. They've heard me say it every single podcast for the last two months. It is just amazing what these kids are doing because we are giving them time to do something amazing. It's just incredible. Words can't describe it. I'll send you a little video about it because it's just so stinking powerful. And they're doing better than they would have done if we would have assigned them to do the exact thing that they're doing. It's brilliant. Yeah. And I think that idea sounds exactly like what I need. So I'm glad you're going to send me information on it because <laughs> like, I look at like this idea of like, you're, we were talking about grades earlier. Do you need to grade kids in that? No. In fact, I refuse to allow them to be graded. Okay. So that would take me to my next point of, wouldn't it be awesome if you could credential it so that they do, they don't just leave with the pride of what they've created, but there's a, a, a a physical, digital, secure record of the accomplishments they made. And then when you look back at their, their experience in your school for however many years they're with you, they have not just this portfolio, but they have these credentials that they can look back, back at with pride and that provides a level of knowledge about the things they've accomplished, not the number that spit out from them after they got 10 questions right out of 12. And I think like, you don't need to degrade that class because it's meaningful. And that's what I think we want to try to move toward with everything. Yeah, absolutely. So the second part of that is I'm working on designing a K-12 school from the ground up to implement these kinds of competency-based approaches, these kinds of micro-credentialing, all this kind of stuff. It's, it's not there yet, but the idea is to be able to do this with our students all day long instead of the traditional school model. And like I said, that's not all done yet, but that's that's the thing that I'm working on. So I do want to respect your time. I think we could probably talk about this for a long, long time because this is fascinating to me. <laughs> what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal like you, Jeremy? I don't know that I'm a transformative principal, but what I think that I know and what I would suggest for principals is to spend time with themselves and figure out what it is that gives them a love for doing this job. And, and recognize that you don't have to have, you don't have to love every part of your job. I hate operations, Jethro. I couldn't care less about the operational aspects of the school. It's part of my job. I do it. I'm required to do it, but it, it's just part of it. So what is it that you love? And then just help one kid in your school, talk to one kid in your school about what it is that they love and help them uncover or test an idea about something that they may be passionate about. And I feel like if you think about it, if you could do that for one one kid per week over 36 weeks in a school year, that alone would be a massive impact. And then if you said, if half your staff could do the same thing, now, I mean, you could work through your whole school really quickly. So I would just say, get in touch with who you are and what drives you and really spend time reflecting on that and then pay that forward to someone else and ask them those questions because they may not have ever thought of it before. And I mean, I know my parents would have never had that talk with me when I was younger. Yeah. Totally. Well, uh, Jeremy, how do people uh, connect with you and learn more from you? Um, I am on uh, Twitter at, at jwilliamsedu. I host a podcast uh, focused on entrepreneurship, education, and expat life. And it's called Dismissed, which you can find on my Twitter profile. And then I'm also really busy on LinkedIn. I am becoming a big LinkedIn advocate, same as Don. I find that like there's so much positivity there. And it's a really safe place for some of my older students to to begin interacting and building their own professional network. So I love LinkedIn too. But um, as I said at the end of Don's podcast, and I'll say again here, I live for just having conversations like this. Jethro, I want to thank you because you've helped me so much throughout this conversation think about 
our idea and, and, and how to refine it and think about different applications of it. And so I'm just extremely appreciative that you had me on and you've given me some of your brilliance. And now I feel like my idea is stronger for it. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This has been great for me because we're moving in the same direction and it's great to have people who, you know, you're not crazy when you're talking to them. So thank you so much. As soon as you get that K-12 school ready, I will move from the desert (laughs) to the uh, tundra and I will be there because part of the reason why I'm so hesitant to move back to America is that I just don't trust the system and it's not set up in the manner that I want it for my children. And I love being here because of that. Yeah, I hear you, man. Well, um, I'm working to make it happen, so I will definitely keep you posted. And thank you so much again for your time tonight or this morning, depending on where you're at. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's 11 a.m. here, but thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.